All right. Um, welcome. Today I am talking to Princeton's greatest living dissident, Sergio Kleinerman. <laughs> I like the introduction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the greatest living dissident in all of the Ivy League, actually. Who's better? Let's get going. Uh, so, Sergio, uh, you caught my attention in 2020 when you wrote in Newsweek that for those like me who were educated in communist regimes, all this brings in painful memories of indoctrination and forced re-education, as well as their abject failure to produce anything but widespread hypocrisy and repressed conformity, end quote. So, uh, since you are a mathematician, you'll understand this. On a zero to one scale, so we can obviously, we have the whole real numbers, all the real numbers in between, uh, where zero is full-fledged great terror Stalinism and one is full-fledged academic freedom. Where is Princeton today? All right, very good question. Uh, one can start by looking at the uh, FIRE's ranking, mm -hmm. CS ranking uh, uh, on academic freedom, based on which University of Chicago comes number one, mm -hmm. with a qualification of this for the speech climate uh, only as good. Princeton mm -hmm. is praised 169, ah. so below average. Harvard 170, Yale 198, with poor qualification as poor. I guess, yeah, below average. Princeton is below average. University of Pennsylvania comes up at 202. Uh, Yale, uh, very poor. I think it's almost the last. Columbia is the last at 203. Anyway, the uh, I would rate. Princeton below Harvard at around five. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the Ivy League. And we uh, are yeah, comparable to Yale. No, sorry, excuse me. I'll put Harvard at five. I'll, I'll put Princeton at four together with Yale. Where uh, lower, number, University lower Chicago, back. University of Chicago at eight. And of course, with uh, Princeton, I'll put it very low because of what happened with Scots. Right. So wait. So so now I'm confused. So like, like uh, lower numbers are better or worse? Because you just put Chicago at eight and Princeton at what five? So eight is better, right? Eight, eight, eight is better. Eight is uh, better. Okay. So eight, or, or, or ten uh, is maximum. Eight is is uh, reasonably good. Uh, okay. So so my scale goes from zero to one, right? Where one one is one is the best. So is Chicago at point eight or where where would you put? Yeah. That? Okay. So divide by ten. Everything by ten. Okay. 0 0.4, right. 0 0.8, and so on. Right, although, although uh, FIRE does not actually rate the University of Moscow at 1935, so... Yeah. Uh, so um, that's zero, yes, right? Yes, I, I, that, that zero. would be zero. So yeah, where, like, like if we imagine this broader scale that includes things that fortunately we do not see in the United States, um, where would you say that the typical research university is on that zero to one scale, where zero is your know, University of Moscow, 1937, say? And one is ideal, full freedom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, presumably, universities in the United States, when I came to the United States, I would have rated them at one. Uh, now, for 1.000, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mathematician yeah. will give that rating. I would think <laughs> never actually I, get above. Well, for me, it was ideal. I mean, you, yes. you, you cannot imagine how. I'm sure that your wife felt the same way when yes. she came. Yes. Was my wife was only six, only six when she got out. So ah, okay. her, her no. worst experience in school was being kicked out of a school event because she was wearing a Western dress. Ah, okay. There were things like this, right? But not academic freedom, I would say. It was, there were all sorts of strange things. Mm -hmm. We also had problems like this with uh, with our children. Uh, but in terms of uh, 
anyway, at least it seemed to me. I mean, I, I was very idealistic. For me, it was a dream come true mm-hmm. when I got to United States. Uh, so uh, anyway, but uh, now situation is much worse. Uh, so you, so I think you're asking five, something. Are we at 0.5 or are we at 0.7, 0.3? What, where you, are we? you mean for Princeton now? Zero. Yeah, well, yeah. So, so, like, like, you know, so Princeton, you put it 0. 0.4, where zero is full fledged Stalinism and one is the ideal world you arrived in. Yes, correct. Chicago right. is uh, still 0. 0.8. All right, so, today. Not so, bad. so that's pretty. That's pretty good. Uh, I mean, with Princeton in particular, uh, I, I think what happened to Katz is unique. I, I don't think any other university uh, was like it. By the way, there was another interesting comment that I, I want to make. So if you look at the fire ra- ratings, mm-hmm. uh, and if you look at the first 30, the, the best 30s on, on their ranking, it's Columbia first. There is another uh, private university. It's Claire, Claremont, I think. It's number three or four. But the first 30 are all public universities, which... Uh, yeah. I find it interesting. Mm-hmm. It shows again that the more elite you you get, the more yeah. the more uh, work you uh, you become. Um, anyway, all right. So you're asking me something. I think you asked me about uh, University of Bucharest. Oh uh, uh, yeah, that was that was my next question, right? So you attended the University of Bucharest from 1969 to 1974. So during your years of attendance, where on that same zero to one scale would you put the University of Bucharest? Yeah, so th- there was a period of time when it was a little bit better. Actually, th- that was probably the best time during uh, communism. Uh, so I would have put Bug- I would have put the university at point three. All right, uh, and it, it got little, much just, worse. Just a little worse than Princeton today. Yeah, right. And then uh, uh, it became point two, and or even point one uh, from seventy three to seventy four. Wow. I left in seventy five. Yeah, so seventy three to seventy five, you could say, I would have put it at point one. So could you describe the violations of academic freedom you personally witnessed at the University of Bucharest? Uh, okay, so the point is, it was very hard to violate something that did not exist at all. <laughs> there, is, there was no real academic freedom. Right, you said point three, so uh, there's got to yeah, be- Yeah, because I, I, I'm looking at other, okay, so that, that's an interesting question. I'm looking at, at other factors. So for example, organized censorship, uh again we have a scale from zero to one mm-hmm. yep uh so organize and you start with zero being uh, sorry organized censorship the maximum would be at one so right. it was very close to one. Uh, well, so self- one one is good one is good so close yeah. to zero uh, or, 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 or public self-censorship mm-hmm. uh i would put also at the same the same level well, right. but, but what, did, what did you what, what did you personally see though? What did you, what did you actually experience? Well, I mean, the, the, you, you know, obviously there was a complete control of the or of the bureaucracy, the party. Uh, we were constantly being told what to do, what to think. Uh, however, uh, when it came to person to person self censorship, mm-hmm. uh, then I, I would have put that uh, at uh, point five. Mm-hmm. So people can talk. I mean, there was this period of time where people were actually, uh, with my friends, I could talk all the time about all sorts of things. I, I, I would say people are much more worried in Princeton now than they we were in Bucharest. And the University of Bucharest, in terms of person-to-person uh, discussions, we're probably less worried that uh, students are worried now 
to discuss their true feelings. So you're more worried you're more worried talking to other professors at Princeton today than you were at the University of Bucharest in the early 70s. Not me, uh, because I don't. I'm not that worried. Uh, so other other, other people, people, are, other people. Other people are. I mean, what's the difference? Well, in in uh, in Bucharest, was it that almost everyone knew that almost everyone knew that you that you didn't believe this stuff? Or is it Princeton? Yes, absolutely. There's too, there's too many true believers. There's too many true believers at Princeton. Yes, but of course there were the the informers also. So there were a certain number of people who would uh, would be uh, used as informers. So uh, you, you had to knew how to whom to avoid. You couldn't really talk to anybody. Does Princeton have informants? Ah, <laughs> uh, good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no idea. They must. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, my guess is there isn't anyone that is just paid purely to be an informant. It's just that when you have more true believers, then more people are likely to inform as a volunteer. But what what do you think? Yes, it's true. Yes. True. Though I presume that th th this kind of people who do it are not just true believers; they are also opportunists. They get something. Yes. They feel they get something in return. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, Anyway, in Princeton, uh, there is an increased control of the bureaucracy today. Organized censorship is, is relatively little, right? In other words, direct censorship. Mm -hmm. I'll put it at uh, 0 0.1. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, public self-censorship is quite high, mm -hmm. so 0 0.6. Mm -hmm. And person-to-person uh, uh, -person -person self-censorship is also, in my opinion, quite high. Mm -hmm higher than it was. I mean, or maybe no, I, I would put it at the same level as in Bucharest, 0. Right. So with the person to person, the, then you really do have to ask yourself the question, what does this person actually think? It could be that they really believe it and they're telling you what they actually think, or it could be that they just stay in character all the time, right? Yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm not... It, it, as I said before, I usually am not worried about talking about, with people of what I believe, mm -hmm. but other people tell me all the time that they are worried to, mm -hmm. to, uh, worried to participate. Uh, for example, the, you know, sometimes we try to organize uh, some letters to the president, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, many people tell me that they prefer not to have their names on, on such letters. So, I mean, that's pretty... Even though they agree. Even though they agree, obviously. Right. And in a way, the main way that we figure out how much people feel feel censored is we compare what they say publicly to what they say privately. If Correct. They're, if they're privately self-censoring, then we really don't know what's going on, right? Correct. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, unless, you're, unless you're very good at reading faces and you say, ah, you, know, you say that, but <laughs> I can tell from your face that you don't believe it. No. Right. But, right. Yeah. But uh, uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm saying that... Uh, uh, there is organized censorship and uh, public self-censorship, if you want, uh, and person-to-person self-censorship is, uh, I don't know, 0.5. So it's pretty bad, I think. Right now, a common view is that communist regimes largely left STEM alone. Right? Lysenkoism aside, how did this fit your experience? Or was Lysenkoism even an issue when you were you know, a student? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it was passed with Sanko, right? So, right. so, so the there's no longer any Lysenkoism? No, and, no, no. So the, it, the biologists it, were normal again? Yes. Right. Yes. So, so, so then, um, you know, so like, you, it, did it fit your experience that the communist regimes left STEM alone? Uh, okay, so let me, let me try to explain a little bit. So uh, 
mathematics and theoretical physics were mostly left alone, mm -hmm. apart from the fact that uh, there was always skewed attributions. You know, people uh, prefer to find Romanian or Russian names to associate with whatever whatever theory and discovery. Uh, uh, and this was silly, but it, it didn't really affect the content. Uh, applied sciences were, were heavily controlled, however, by the ideologies. The most important interventions in general were through hiring. So this was obviously affecting also mass and physics. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 you know, in, in order to be hired, you had to uh, uh, be sort of a good standing member of the Communist Party uh, as a, uh, a person who follows, basically, who doesn't really show much initiative. And usually these people were also relatively, uh, <clears throat> from the point, scientific point of view, were, would tend to be uh, uh, as a mediocre. Yeah. Hmm. So they didn't care. Once, once, as long as you were in good standing with the Communist Party, you can say whatever you want in applied science. But if you're not in good standing, then it doesn't matter how good you are. Is that... A good description. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, for example, as you probably know, in in, in Soviet Union, if you're Jewish, mm -hmm. so this was not just a matter of uh, of social origin uh, or the fact that you're in the Communist Party or not. I mean, the Jews were kind of discriminated in a serious way. In particular, it was very very difficult to get uh, to be a student at University of Moscow or or Saint Petersburg. Mm -hmm. Uh, not in Romania. Romania was less. Romania was more sort of this kind of anti-Semitism was more at, at the higher level. Mm -hmm. For example, it would have been very difficult for me to to become a professor at the uh, University of Bucharest mm -hmm. because of being Jewish. Uh, I was also not a member of the Communist Party, and I would not have become anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you could be a graduate. You could be a student there. So you were a PhD student at the University of Bucharest, or what was your what was your highest no. rank? No, no, I, I was trying to become a PhD student. Uh, at that time, I had to be a member of the Communist Party. And so you wouldn't join, and so they wouldn't let you in? Yeah, they, they would not let me in, as long as I didn't join, they would let me in. Did the party come to fortunately, you? I left, fortunately, I left relatively soon after my... Did the party come party. to you and say, you, why don't you join? Come on, let's join. No, they no, 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 no. So they, they, they would come to many of my friends who had to say, uh -huh. The same kind of level of academic performance, but not to me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, now, how would you compare Princeton's current treatment of STEM to what you witnessed in communist Romania? Uh, so uh, again, mass and physics are, are doing reasonably well. Uh, I think uh, uh, engineering it's it's starting to be more affected. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, of course, social sciences also, and uh, obviously humanities are seriously affected. Right. Um, right. So, uh, so like you, my wife is a refugee from communist Romania. Or I'm not sure. Would you have called yourself a refugee when you arrived? Uh, yeah, I was a refugee. Uh, sorry. Uh, excuse me. Just one second. Oh, no problem. Okay. There is somebody coming to me. All right, I'll, I'll start over. So uh, like you, my wife is a communist, excuse me, not a communist. <laughs> like you, my wife is a refugee from communist Romania. Uh, but when asked about communism, most Romanians I've met give me a version of a noble idea in theory, but due to human hypocrisy, it worked poorly in practice. Uh, to what extent do you agree or disagree? Uh, I think they are totally wrong. <laughs> Please tell us more. Uh, well, so I think it was a terrible, communism was a terrible idea, 
based on Marx's distorted economic theory, he's uh, naive, secular, and kind of eschatological belief in the fact that at the end of the day, he will create a new man and everything will be perfect, everybody will be happy. Uh, the entire premise of communism uh, had, with its absurd belief in the role of the proletariat as a vanguard of the revolution was incredi incredibly artificial. And of course, it has led to many unmitigated disaster whenever it was applied. And of course, it was applied a lot in the last hundred years. So uh, uh, I, for me, communism was a fraud, both as a doctrine, as well as in the way it was implemented. Wait, can we just back up for a second? So did you say the idea of the proletariat as a vanguard, or is it the idea of the Communist Party as the vanguard of the proletariat? Um, okay, so you get me you get me confused with the ideology. I don't remember. What I learned <laughs> is indeed, what I learned is indeed that the Communist Party is a vanguard of the proletariat and the proletariat is a vanguard of the society. Right. right? So they are yes. they they are the ones who uh yeah, there's historic responsibility to create to fight the, for the revolution and to implement the revolution and so on. So on. Yeah, this is the party leads the workers, the workers leads the peasants, the peasants okay. lead everybody. Exactly, exactly. Whoever's exactly. left, the lumpen proletariat. Right, yes. And uh, yeah, this reminds me of a quote of Orwell, who said that a society becomes totalitarian when its structures becomes flagrantly artificial. Mm -hmm. uh, that is when its ruling class has lost its function, but succeeds in clinging to power by force or fraud. That's exactly what happened. Well, not, maybe not so much at the beginning, I mean, you know, the revolutionary period uh, immediately after 1917 was slightly different, but certainly at the time when I knew communism, it certainly was like this. I mean, perfectly well described by Orwell. So what was the bigger problem with communism? Sincere fanaticism or cynical opportunism? It's very simple. Uh, sincere fanaticism of few, mm -hmm. cynical opportunism of uh, many, and uh, resignation and maybe normal opportunism for the majority. So which was the bigger problem? Of course, the uh, fanaticism of a few because they were the ones. And well, actually, I, I mean, for myself, when at, at the time when I was grown up, it was uh, even I would say the cynical opportunism was more important than a fanatical. But it was an elite, obviously, that was you know half maybe at the beginning they were fanatical, then they became very cynical and. Uh, so, so I'm very pleased that you agree with me on this question, I, because most people don't, even people who know a lot about the history of communism, it seems that they focus more on the opportunism. And I'm, and I'm always saying, well, what about the sincere fanatics? Without them, nothing happens in the first place. You know, it's because yeah. of fanatics, the revolution even happens. Without them, you can't, yeah. start, you can't start mass murder with just opportunists. You need true believers or things stay okay. Yeah, there's a very, very good book by Yuri Sleskin from Berkeley which is called The House of Government. I don't know if you know it. I, I, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. It's a wonderful book, and it describes exactly this aspect of the, the revolution, the original uh, perpetrators. I mean, the original Bolsheviks were, uh, of course, were fanatics, obviously. I mean, they, they definitely believed strongly in it, and it was like a religion for them. Yeah, so The House of Government is, you know, the first hundred pages are, are really amazing, actually. In terms of describing the mentality, the ideology of these people. So you put Stalin in the uh, fanatic camp, not the opportunist camp. 
Yeah, I would say he was probably both. Right. Pain, but, <laughs> but, but he was a fanatic, for sure. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a recent book just about his library and his marginalia, which is very consistent with the fanatic story. But again, I've talked to many people who are highly informed and who just say, no, 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 of course he didn't believe this stuff. It was like, he didn't? No, no. No, no, they all believed, of course. I mean, the, the original Bolsheviks, they all, everybody around Lenin, they, they, obviously they believed it, the nonsense. All right. Um, so here's another quote from something you've written. Quote, overrepresentation of certain groups necessarily implies underrepresentation of others. This is certainly a problem, but not one of racism. Rather, it stems from the opposite of racism, namely a policy that rewards people based on their individual achievements and promise of future achievement, and not by the color of their skin or their ethnic or socioeconomic background, end quote. Uh, this suggests that academic achievement at places like Princeton is in steep decline. Is that what you think is happening now? Uh, well, so again, in, in, in math and physics, no, I don't see it. I mean, so certainly I know math well. I, I don't see that. Uh, you think math is still going strong and the, math system, is still is not, the system is not messed it up yet? Yes, uh, of course it, it could be. I mean, I, I think we are in danger. There are already signs which are bad. For example, we gave up, uh, I think it was a big mistake. We gave up uh, the GRE exam uh, in math. Really? Uh, so there are, there are a few signs, uh, but overall, I think the quality is still very high. I mean, the uh, math GRE was always a strange test because if you can get a PhD in math at Princeton, you probably have a perfect score on that test. Yes, so it's exactly. always a bad top-coded test where there it just didn't pick out the difference between the 95th percentile and the 99th percentile, right? That's true, but uh, yes. nevertheless, but it was a lot better than nothing. Yeah, no, and I, I do think it, it for us. I, I don't think it was very important, but I, I think it gave a very bad signal to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. I think I'm more worried about that aspect rather than for us. For us, it's not so important. I agree. I mean, letters of recommendations are much more important. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, you, you you know you get when you get something like I don't know 900 applications. Uh, the GRE gives you a sort of a, a way to eliminate a lot of a lot of people who sure, sure. have a very low GRE. So it was it was also useful from that point of view. But um, so and like you also would know physics. You think physics isn't declined yet, or it's still going at full capacity? The the physics department. Yes. I don't know. I have some. I, I have people who from the physics department uh, who tell me that they are worried much much more worried than I am about the math department. So I I don't know. I can't tell. Uh, but I, I think they have maybe more issues than we have. All right. So uh, Jews and Asians have a history of exceptional academic performance. What can less successful groups learn from Jews and Asians? Well, <laughs> I remember that uh, when I was a student, in high school student, or even earlier, actually, student at school, uh, the, as, you enter, as you enter the school, you see uh, a big placard uh, with uh, words by Lenin, and they were study, study, study. <laughs> and <laughs> so I think he's not, wrong, he's not wrong in everything. The sky is blue, and study, study, study. <laughs> right. So this was the the one thing that uh, that uh, the one quotation from Lenin that I think was not too bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, I mean the. the there was a lot of emphasis uh, on, on studying. Of course, there was a lot of emphasis on studying. I mean, we know very well, right? The, 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 both the Jews and the Asians have enormous uh, respect for, for education and studying and 
and they have, uh, especially the Asians, uh, with the Asian moms, mm -hmm. uh, the fierce Asian moms. Uh, obviously, these things make a huge difference. Of course, there could be other factors. I don't know, but I think these are the most visible factors. Uh, how much you praise uh, uh, education? So probably the Jews are especially associated with contrarian thinking and iconoclasm and challenging ideas. Uh, where would you put that as uh, for you know, especially for making really great achievements and contributions? I'll put it very very high. Yeah, yeah. I agree very high. I mean, I think I'm sure you know this very well. It's very important to be a contrarian. I mean, if you if you are uh, in science, you uh, basically, I think any any great scientist has uh, has got this virus of sort of looking at exactly sort of placing himself or herself outside the common view, mm -hmm. right, and trying to trying to start from there. So trying, trying to start from a minority point of view, I think it's an extremely important thing. So in that sense, you're right. I mean, I think the, the Jewish traditions were very helpful. All right, excellent. All right, so colorblindness has practically been classified as hate speech on modern university campuses, but you, Sergio, seem to find great value in this norm. If Princeton <laughs> let you address incoming freshmen on the value of colorblindness, what would you say? Oh God. Uh, well, okay, to start with, I will remind students about uh, the goals of and the values of university education. Uh, I will rely on my own personal experiences growing up in Romania about the dangers of uh, replacing uh, or even just supplementing married to other considerations based on what mm -hmm. people in power may consider as uh, worthy social justice goals. Mm -hmm. uh, so the point is that uh, somehow when you try to enhance the representation of some identity group of individuals deemed underrepresented, and maybe they are of course underrepresented, based on race, religion, sexual identity, or I don't know, physical handicap, or whatever else, by short-circuiting merit consideration, uh, you create a zero-sum game inferno where you cannot possibly satisfy any group. The All result right. is almost zero sum early. game inferno. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a zero sum game inferno, students. <laughs> <laughs> the result is almost always a corrupt system in which people well placed or uh, opportunists of all types can game the system to their advantage. So I, I think it's a terrible. I mean, and anytime you 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 get away from merit you create huge problems and you don't solve, in the end, you don't solve any problem at all because you 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 still, most probably, you still have huge differences between the, between the outcomes of different groups. So on that note, I'm actually curious about your last name. So would Romanians have thought of it as a German name, Kleinemann? Uh, could, yes. could you have passed as a German if you had wanted to? You know, in the same way that right now in American universities, if you were one eighth black, you might want to say that I'm African American, even though you don't care about that identity. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I could. I guess I, I don't know. And so people tell me that I'm quite quite dark, dark skinned. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, uh, maybe people claim that I'm more I look more like a Sephardic. Uh, so I don't know. I could use. Uh, I I could even say that I'm a person of color. Were Were there any Jew, uh, Jews in Romania who tried to pass as not being Jewish or tried to use mixed heritage or anything in order to get around? Yes, 
Yes, yes there are quite a few. Yeah, few. definitely. I mean, uh, at the beginning, there were quite a few that, that tried to completely forget. But then, of course, later on, it became an advantage because the only way you can get out of the... I mean, one of yes, very few people could get out of the country uh, and Jews were capable because of you know what Israel did. Israel was paying for for people to get out so um so it became it's it started to become an advantage later on yeah my mother-in-law was actually able to get able to get out because she was half armenian armenian armenians were considered another counter-revolutionary group but who was paying for them who was paying for them yeah so i think i think they had they had some friends that were willing to go and help her out uh in los angeles right but so she was only able to get out alone but it did seem like that armenian heritage mattered somewhat and then you know, my wife's family was separated for three years as they tried to get the rest of the family out because no one else was Armenian. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, back in 2019, so before COVID, before George Floyd, how hard was Princeton math trying to increase ethnic and gender diversity? Okay, well, uh, I came in to Princeton in 1987. Uh, and uh, ever since, I, I've witnessed a constant preoccupation to increase the number of female graduate students as well as the number of female faculty professors. Mm -hmm. uh, the so numbers so, so mostly on gender, not on race. Th that was mostly on gender. It still is mostly on gender. Really? Uh, this could change. I mean, it, it yeah. looks like it's going to change, but for the. I mean, so far it has been mostly gender. The, mostly gender. The, the numbers have certainly increased the number of female students, and, uh, but the pressure obviously has not subsided. And uh, I, I don't quite understand exactly where this is going. I mean, the, given the current trends, I don't see how this pressure can stop before we reach gender equality, which is say 50% male, 50% females, because mm -hmm. you know, as long as there is some, Mm -hmm. uh, and you think the pressure is going to increase pressure. so that we also have full racial quotas or full full, full racial balance too, or what will happen? Yeah, yeah. I, right now it it's, seems like we may be moving in that direction. I I, I really can't quite tell. I think the must. They're not going to reduce Jews down to their percentage of the population. Well, <laughs> there's not there's not going to be affirmative action for Gentiles to get them up to their ninety eight percent. Right. So, that, but that's a problem, right? I mean, when you start talking about equity, when you put yes. equity as the main, the most important factor, then yeah, the, there are too many Jews, of course. I mean, yes. I don't know, maybe maybe thirty percent of the faculty mm -hmm. is twenty five percent. I think I would think will be of Jewish descent. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously high, much too high, right? Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. Um, blogger Scott Alexander has a joke, which is, I can tolerate anything except the outgroup. The uh, He has an essay of the same title that has this parable. Uh, the emperor summons before him Bodhidharma and asks, Master, I've been tolerant of innumerable gays, lesbians, bisexuals, asexuals, Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, transgender people, and Jews. How many virtue points have I earned for my meritorious deeds? Bodhidharma answers, none at all. Or <laughs> somewhat puts out demands to know why. Bodhidharma asks, "Well, what do you think of gay people?" The emperor answers, "What do you think I am? Some kind of homophobic bigot? Of course, I have nothing against gay people." And Bodhidharma answers, "Thus, do you gain no merit by tolerating them?" If Princeton really cared about diversity, shouldn't it replace current demographic preferences with strong affirmative action for moderates, conservatives, libertarians, and adherents of traditional religion? Or is this a bad idea too? Well, 
it is really a wonderful uh, story. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. To me, toleration of any group is fine as long as the organizing principle is to improve or at least maintain academic quality based on merit. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's perfectly fine to have different points of view, but but uh, yeah. again, the organizing principle should be should be uh, met. So what if the admissions yeah. committee is so biased against them that you know that they are that they are not meritocratic? Would it make sense to impose quotas on them to admit the people they do not like? Okay, so here, uh, let me put it this way. I, I strongly believe that having different points of view on contentious academic issues, yes. that's important, ought to be an essential feature of a successful university. Both students and faculty would certainly benefit from uh, serious debates, serious academic intellectual debates. So in, the, in that sense, I feel that uh, uh, if a particular specific point of view is missing from a particular academic program, that should typically is not mathematics, of course, the university should strive to find the most qualified person who represents it. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I, I, I agree with you. I think- So, so, so and for uh, student admissions as well? Uh, no. Like, like, like we, you have to let, you have to have at least 10% conservative students. No, I, no. That, I would not, yeah, definitely. But for professors, yes. Hmm. Uh, I mean, for faculty, yes. Uh, in the sense of bringing in faculty who represents uh, a, a different point of view uh, of high academic level or high intellectual level. Uh, if it's missing, you should do something about it. But when it comes to students, no, I wouldn't do anything. I mean, I would just look for merit, uh, absolute merit. All right. So you've heavily criticized Princeton's freshman orientation as nihilistic. What's wrong with it? So, and what, if anything, should replace this nihilistic freshman orientation? Well, okay, so a freshman orientation program should, besides criticizing the thoughts of the past, uh, as it happened uh, at, at freshman orientations in Princeton, which were, uh, it was a long story uh, last year, in fact, la at the beginning of last year, the freshman orientation was, uh, was uh, very problematic, as I wrote in, in, one of, in a few of my articles. In any case, uh, uh, so freshman orientation should, criticize the thoughts of the past, but at the same time should take pride in the strong tradition of academic freedom, at Princeton in particular, uh, and talk about the richness of intellectual, present the richness of its intellectual lives, the triumphs, as well as the flows of the universities, uh, both historically and present. Uh, it is a university, in fact, it's really the university's very traditional freedom and dedication to truth that has enabled the institution to improve itself over the years, building on its strengths and shedding a lot of its weaknesses. Uh, while while really... you're talking about problems of the past, how about a section on how, how bad Princeton has gotten in the last 10 years? Could there be a section on that? Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. We're really sorry for the last 10 years. Those are the worst. Yes, indeed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But right. in any case, when I talk about nihilistic, I, I, I mean that... Uh, in particular, when it comes to race relations, uh, the Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Princeton presented uh, really a very nihilistic point of view of the enormous progress made at Princeton uh, with, with respect to uh, racial issues. I mean, obviously, the university today is very different from the one 60, 70 years ago. So uh, is, is nihilistic really the right word, or would left-wing fanaticism be more descriptive? 
uh, I would say nihilistic in, in the sense that uh, uh, not caring about the values of the universities, not caring about the progress that was made, not, not caring about... Uh, about. Right, but they care about something. You know, there's a famous line from the Big Lebowski where, where, where there's a character described as a nihilist. The guy says, nihilist, you know, and they say, you know, like, I think, what was the, oh yeah, the, the line was, you know, there was, there was like, you know, someone was called a Nazi and then someone said, no, he's a nihilist. And then the other character says, say what you want about the theory and practice of national socialism, but at least it was an ethos. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you say, well, like, like, I would think of the woke movement as not being nihilistic at all. They've got a set of alternative values that they really believe in very sincerely. It's not that they want to destroy everything. They don't want to destroy their stuff. Or am I wrong? Well, uh, it's a good question. I mean, uh, nihilistic, nihilism, in, in, in some sense, it's a contradiction in terms, because obviously even a nihilist believes in the yes. fact that he's a nihilist or I don't know, whatever, right? They, right. It, it doesn't make sense anyway. But uh, uh, I, I, I meant it, of course, in, in uh, limited terms as, it, as far as it concerns sort of the traditional values of the American society, right? including fairness and uh, and um, you know considerations based on merit. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's what I meant. But you are right. I mean, they also believe in something. Of course, they believe in something which uh, I happen to believe that is very destructive. Let's see. Yeah, Sergio, your camera just moved a lot. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah. Now we're good again. Okay. Um, here's another long quote from you, Sergio. Uh, guest blogging for Barry Weiss. You write, "Quote: Communism had a strong sense of objective reality." anchored in the belief that humans are capable of discovering universal truths. It forcefully asserted, in fact, the absolute truth of dialectic materialism as revealed by its founders, Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Communist ideology held science and mathematics in the highest regard, even though it often distorted the former for doctrinal reasons." End quote. Our early anti-Marxists often attack them for making blanket ad hominem arguments against, for example, bourgeois history and bourgeois economics along the lines of, since you're bourgeois, of course you find these arguments compelling. Uh, how epistemically corrupt was classical Marxism-Leninism, really? Okay, so I only meant to say that Marxists had a strong belief in our ability as humans mm -hmm. to find the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, by no means, I think that Marxists themselves were in possession of such a truth, mm -hmm. uh, right? So uh, not only in economics, but in, uh, especially in their understanding of the nature of man. Uh, they believe that class defined according to economic reality mm -hmm. uh, determines one's view of the world. They also believe that only the proletariat was naturally predisposed to know the truth, while bourgeois people could only arrive to it by re-education, which uh, was usually pretty awful. Mm -hmm. uh, this was complete lunacy as far as I'm concerned and led in the end to an incompetent and deeply corrupt political elite. They, in that sense, they were obviously uh, epistemically corrupt, both in their methods and in and in the, the the use of these methods for their corrupt political ends, and obviously the goal of controlling the population. Yeah, sometimes you'll hear conservatives say things like Marxism-Leninism was the fruit of the Enlightenment, and my reaction is always like, that's the exact opposite. Uh, what yeah. do you it's true. Yeah. Sure. There, there's a lot of confusion uh, about Marxism. I, actually, you, you know, when I came to the United States, I, I was ashamed. I, I mean, I, I, I 
visited both France and I spent of course, a, lot of, a lot of time in the United States. And I was amazed how intellectuals, I mean, my colleagues, students, and later faculty, how much uh, they misunderstood the nature of, of communism. They, they knew a lot about fascism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so fascism was condemned from the beginning. But uh, there was nothing even remotely similar concerning Marxism. There was absolutely no understanding of what it did and how it functioned and how terrible it was. I mean, I would think that, that most American academics would also know very little really about fascism. I mean, for example, just to know Mussolini's origin story, to know that he was the head of the Italian Socialist Party before he became the head of the right. Fascist Party. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, he, he was the editor of the people of Italy. Like, we have his daily editorials from when he was a Marxist-Leninist and when Lenin said he was a great guy. I mean, that's the kind of thing that hardly anyone knows about, really. Yeah, I guess you are right. I mean, I, I, I meant to say, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think I, I meant to say uh, uh, more in the sense that whatever they knew, they, they were ready to condemn it. Mm -hmm. right? They condemned it totally and completely and unconditionally. Well, that was not true about communism. Right, or I mean, just in terms of the economic policies of Nazism, fascism, uh, I mean, the, the actual story was that these were very socialist economies, not full Stalinist, but they had a very large role for government. And yet most people barely think about that, or they just say, oh, you know, you know, even if you say, well, you know, Nazism, that stands for national socialism. So, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's like completely made up. They had no actual interest in socialism. They're like, well, gee, I mean, like it's kind of yeah. odd that you would market yourself that way if it had no appeal at all. Exactly. What and of course it's interesting. I mean, if you look at communism, communism started as a socialist movement with internationalist objectives. Let's say, right? Uh, well, of course, uh, Nazi, the Nazi Party, National Socialist Party, was also a socialist party, but was nationalist. Mm -hmm. But in the end, if you look at the of what happened with the, with the communist parties in just about all mm -hmm. countries that I know of, they became very nationalistic at the yeah, end. Yeah. They started, yeah. So Romania they started, especially, right? They became like, not, I mean, they were in the, almost indistinguishable from Nazi parties. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, maybe maybe the only difference was that they were not obsessed by, uh, by Jews, but otherwise uh, mm -hmm. they had all the characteristics of the Nazi. So would you say that it is unfair to call wokeism cultural Marxism? Or are the underlying underlying similarities bigger than the differences? Uh, okay, so uh, uh, sorry, can can you repeat the question yes, again? Yes, sure. Okay. Uh, would you say that it is unfair to call wokeism cultural Marxism, or are the underlying similarities bigger than the differences? Well, I I, I think. Uh, there are many more things that get into into what is called the woke movement. So, so some of it is is cultural Marxism, of course, coming from Gramsci and and the Frankfurt School, and and uh, but there is also other things that go in, like the postmodernism mm -hmm. ideas, right, deconstructionism, and, mm -hmm. but then also uh, there is a, the the willingness of the Democratic Party, I think, to use identity politics has played a major role in the creation of wokeism. Uh, there is uh, the you might say an important part of actual Marxist Leninist countries was crushing identity politics. Yes, yes, sure. so, yes, we are we're all Soviet citizens here. We are like we're not going to be having some separate Armenian 
Yes, at least at the beginning. At least yes. at the beginning. Then later on, it became more Russian nationalist or, yeah, yes. or Romanian. Uh, I mean, anti anti Hungarian. Right. And uh, so not not very happy with Jews and so on. Right. Uh, Although if you think about identity politics as supporting minority identities, there's the identity politics of the large of, of the main identity where everyone has to be part of that. And then there is the identity politics where you try to say let's let every individual identity gets to get get its own quota. So there's not much of that. You know, like really after probably you know, you know maybe you mean in in, in communism yeah, yeah, in, in communist countries so. in communist yeah in communism yeah. indeed as you said that they were trying to scratch uh, yes. these yes I mean, you're, 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 you're right under Lenin and very early Stalin as he was minister of nationalities or whatever his job title was there was a pretense of we're going to let each country be Stalinist in its own way you know, in its own language <laughs> right yes but, right. but then exactly. but over time then yes the Russian national yeah. takes over. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, in we're, Romania, we're, the same thing. I mean, yeah. the, originally, I mean, the, the ideology was was uh, completely internationalist. We don't care about your religion or yeah. or uh, ethnic identities, and yeah, which is why Gorbachev was so shocked by the ethnic breakdown of the Soviet Union. Yes, the idea right. of even telling people for seventy years they're all Soviets, and that st still it turns out that you can get Azerbaijanis killing Armenians and vice versa in the late eighties. And it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> like, we never told you this. <laughs> right. Well, Yugoslavia. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's one of the sort of the remarkable things uh, that happened with, with the collapse of communism, that all these things that were supposed to have been had been solved by the communist regime, all these issues between, for example, ethnic minorities, they all explode. I mean, it's like, you know, the communists has not been able to do anything about them. They just kept them under, uh, they, they just kept them suppressed. And, you know, once the lead was out, uh, everything exploded back to what it was before. I mean, Yugoslavia is especially striking. Actually, once I was at the University Library at George Mason, and I found the English language publication of the Yugoslavian Communist Party, right? So I pick it off the shelf, and I just flip to the last issue before the journal went out of business because the Yugoslavian uh, Communist Party went out of business. And, yes. and, and I'm reading this thing, it's all in English, so I have no trouble reading it. And the last issue is saying, and so there's the, uh, there's the, the iron, the iron unity of, of, of Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, <laughs> Macedonians, and then next issue it disappears and, so, and there's a civil war. And it was a truly Orwellian moment where like up yeah. to the very last issue, there was no even mention that there was any possibility that anyone disagreed with this stuff. And it turns out almost everyone yeah. disagreed with it. Yeah, but this was this era of artificial. I mean, you know, the, the system was so artificial. Mm -hmm. And, it, 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 you know, it's... And, and the fear, the, like, there was you know, a huge... iron fist, people are, 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 are shutting up, but not out of sincere conviction. Right. So, like, I, 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 I've said it often, uh, is uh, the feeling that I had as growing up in Romania was was uh, one of uh, sort of schizophrenic, almost schizophrenic. There were two realities. There was the, the official reality, which was, you know, all is great and, you know, the party is doing this and Ceausescu, uh, uh, the the greatest and his wife uh, is a genius, right? Ever, and, 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 so and, uh, and, and then the, is a genius, right? Then the genius and chem, <laughs> great chemist and, and so on and so. On. And then you have a you know the reality of day to day, which is totally, completely, completely the opposite, right? So this sense of irreality is 
is also what what I think what made the the communist elite not realize uh, what was going on in the country, and that's I think one of the reasons why the why you had the collapse of Soviet Union, collapse of the communist countries in general, and, and in particular collapse of the Soviet Union. Although the successor elite tended to be communists who realized how wrong the ethnic harmony was, right? So Slobodan Milosevic, he's a Yugoslavian Communist Party member who says, wait a second, the Serbs are the biggest group here. Like if I just go and you know, <laughs> fall in on Serbia, then I can take over the yeah. new, you know, I can be the new dictator, but so like in a different way, but still same basic idea. Right. That's true. Of course, in a lot of the ex-Soviet republics, you get a nationalist in who just says, hey, I got my finger on the pulse of these people. They want to hear that they are Cossacks. So, yeah, Cossacks. Yes, yeah. No, so you have this incredible uh, change, uh, which, once again, it shows that somehow uh, this period of communism was, uh, was just an extraordinary artificial period in, in the history of humanity. It's probably nothing like this ever happened. Right. You had a, all right, so you had a nine-month email exchange with Princeton President Christopher Eisgruber. Could you distill the essence of the exchange down to just one paragraph? Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, basically he says, uh, I believe in academic freedom and in free speech, but this the same academic freedom and free speech applies to bureaucrats uh, whenever they they uh, do what they have done, for example, to Joshua Katz, in other words, to, to uh, present them as, as, as uh, I mean, to lie about them, to present them as racist, and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, to really harass them, really, as it happened in the case of Joshua Katz again. <laughs> Right, so so it's it's this disconnect between, on one hand, he is for academic freedom, on the other hand, I don't think he, for whatever reasons, I don't think he really understands that you know academic freedom is is the freedom of, of faculty members is not does not really apply to the bureaucracy or to the administration of the university. They cannot harass other people. Uh, uh, so anyway, this yeah, because as non professors. What good are their opinions anyway? <laughs> is that the idea? Like, 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 why should we take them seriously? Like, they have their functionaries. Is that your thinking, or what? Yes, right. But in any case, I mean, just just to make it uh, clear again. So basically, he pretends to be a strong advocate of free speech, yet believes that its protections uh, apply really to his own administration when they exercise their power to shame, mm -hmm. or humiliate, or ostracize. Uh, individual. It wasn't, it wasn't another important part of the exchange just that he claimed there was going to be faculty input on the Katz case, and then it turned out that he ignored all of that. Right, exactly. So there, there was there was a report uh, by a faculty committee which was uh, essentially taking. So I, I I don't know if I should repeat the story. So we. It's a it's a long story, but in any case, we we made a complaint. The complaint was rejected by the university. Then uh, it was reviewed by a, a faculty committee. The faculty committee took claim, came up with a report which was in our favor, completely in our favor. Mm -hmm. And then Eisgruber completely, uh, completely disregarded. So it's not really true that Katz doesn't have a friend on the faculty. He's got a whole committee. And was it like was it unanimously in favor of him, or what happened on that committee? Yes, I think. I I mean, it's not so much in. You see the. 
when you talk about cuts, you talk about two, two things, right? You talk about the, re the actual reason for which he was fired, mm -hmm. which is different from the one that, uh, uh, that we took on, right? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you are aware of this, right? There were two- oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know the whole things. story. Yeah, so it's a so so the uh, this faculty committee. So the the report of the faculty committee I'm talking about is is one that ref, refers to the way he was portrayed in this uh, freshman orientation mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the previous freshman orientation last year. Uh, so that's the one that uh, that uh, we took on and we complained and 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 Eisgruber, uh, disregarded the report of the faculty committee. Right. So uh, you just mentioned, uh, you, know, you just said that you know, Ice Gruber doesn't understand academic freedom. So based on your interactions, where would you put Ice Gruber on that fanatic opportunist continuum we talked about before, where let's say one is full fanatic, zero is full opportunist. Where is he? 0 0.5. 0 point, so he's right in the middle. Yes. Okay, so, I think he's a very conflicted. And I, I do think that he's a conflicted individual. I mean, I, I think he believes with half of his brain, he believes uh, that academic freedom is very important. With the other half, he thinks that there are all these other things that uh, that uh, have to do with uh, social justice. Mm -hmm. That he so he has to square it somehow. He has to square the circle, um, mm -hmm. and you know finds it difficult to do it. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's they're squaring the circle where you intellectually believe two things, and they're squaring the circle where you intellectually believe one thing but that will get you fired. And so you have to somehow say something else. So my, feeling, my feeling is that he believes both things. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's also uh, opportunistic, obviously. I mean, I, I think if, I think he took into account somehow the, where the, the pressure was coming from. I mean, there's clearly more pressure coming from those who wanted to fire cuts Mm -hmm. than for those who wanted to keep that. So I presume that was a, that also played a very important role. Okay. Uh, in a recent piece, you and co-authors advocate the following university reforms. A, sharply reduce the share of non-tenure track instructors. B, subject all mandatory attendance events to faculty review. C, inclusion of faculty members on all faculty misconduct committees. D, standard due process rights for accused faculty. E, faculty involvement in undergraduate admissions. F, follow the Chicago principles of academic freedom and the Calvin Report's recommendations on political neutrality. Here's my question. Given the level of leftist fanaticism among tenure track faculty, how much of an improvement would these reforms actually be? Um, most notably, wouldn't the, the main effect of A just be to give tenure jobs to a massive new cohort of woke activists? Yeah, actually, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think it was well, these principles were not well formulated. Mm -hmm. I, I would put it more succinctly, succinctly right now mm -hmm. uh, as being to restore freedom of speech, depoliticize the university, and restore the power of the faculty. Mm -hmm. uh, this would be the real goals. Now, uh, these other things that we put in the article are all uh, useful, but somehow, Mm -hmm. They should so restore the, the power of the faculty. That will save the that will save STEM, but then that'll just leave the humanities and social sciences basically where they are, right? Because they're already yeah. taken over. Correct. So, but at least we'll have STEM, so, and STEM is what really delivers the great products of civilization. Is that the idea? 
Well, yeah, and more. I would say that uh, these are the goals that we have to strive and fight for. Can we implement them now? Probably not. But doing nothing is not an option. So, I mean, we have to really talk about what we want, mm -hmm. even if we, even if, for example, we have no, no chance of implementing them right now anyway. So on that subject of we can't do nothing, what if we could do everything? All right. So suppose Princeton's board of trustees came to you and they said, you know, Sergio Kleinerman, you are great. We love every word you say. Um, we'll do anything you tell us to do. Just tell us what we need to do to save Princeton. <laughs> All right. So okay. would you ramp, ramp, ramp up your suggested reforms or so what would you tell them if the board of trustees came hat in hand and said, we are ready to do just what you say? Okay, you'd be surprised by my answer. I would say, okay. first of all, I will ask for more, more than what I asked. More, more than all? They'll, they'll, do, they'll give you 100%. <laughs> okay, fire the top. So here is what's more fire the top administration, dismantle DI, eliminate, eliminate all politicized departments, the grievance studies, and reform the admission policy of the university. That will have to come first before any new permanent structures are put in place. So. I... Huh. Wow, it's almost like you re read my mind, Sergio, because my next question was going to say what I want to do. <laughs> it almost sounds like we agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, so my next question actually was, if it were me in this hypothetical, I'd start with mass firings of the administration, including obviously Ice Gruber, elimination of all DEI employees, elimination of grievance studies, and then the last one, we like, like you maybe we agree. But so I suggested admission strictly on standardized test scores. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think the only way right now to mm -hmm. to go to get out of uh, of uh, the many problems that we have today with a system in place today is really to uh, give up on any other considerations, but. Uh, but uh, standardized tests. So I agree, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, like anyone who's paying attention has to admit standardized tests aren't perfect, but yes. better than letting some extremely bigoted humans decide your true merit and then hand out submissions based on that. It's true, but of course I have no idea how, how we can go from here to there. <laughs> well, so the nice thing that Princeton is a private organization if uh, the board of trustees is listening. Uh, Sergio and I are really happy to go and just tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm afraid. And, and, and you know, and, you know the, like, here's the thing. In a regular business, there would be someone saying we would get sued into the ground if we tried doing this stuff. But Princeton is so fabulously rich. I think the answer to that is we'll just hire a lot more lawyers to defend ourselves from the lawsuits and we're going to do what we want to do. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really what the Ivy League is doing right now. Uh, with the affirmative action cases with the Supreme Court, they've just said, look, we care so much, we are going to just spend enough on lawyers to get our way, right? And if you can spend enough on lawyers to get your way on one thing, you could change it around and do the opposite with your lawyers working loyally to help you accomplish what you want to do lawfully. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it, right. it's very hard to understand what they really want. I mean, what you know, in, in, in many of my articles, actually, I said, if, you, if the university is serious mm -hmm. about, uh, about improving the situations of minorities, 
the way to do is to invest a, a huge amounts of money. They can invest it in local education, for example. I mean, I know they can go to Trenton and try mm -hmm. to improve. I mean, they can put a few million billion dollars mm -hmm. uh, in Trenton and improve the education there. That will have some effect, mm -hmm. uh, right? Or local. Lo I mean, Princeton, of course. Mm -hmm. It's 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 mainly. A, it doesn't have this problem because it doesn't have that many minorities, but but uh, they can go to Trump, they can go to New York. I mean, they, you know, they have the money and they they claim all the time that they care about minorities. So why don't they do that? Instead, they are doing something which is wrong for everybody, including the minorities, mm -hmm. right? because there are so many kids. You know, we get so many kids uh, in mathematics, for example, we get kids uh, who are, say, Black Americans. They are very smart. Uh, they are willing to learn. They want to learn. They they can't say they want to do mathematics. They go into the mathematics department, and they are surrounded by people who are about five years ahead in terms of preparation. Mm -hmm. uh, so they get discouraged. They get depressed. Uh, many of them really start resenting mm -hmm. uh, the university. I mean, uh, there are many many. Yeah, examples they'll probably just end up in a non-STEM department, right? And right, or you can completely destroy the, the STEM department. But but right now, what is happening is that these people are, are really uh, deserved by the university in major ways. And the university doesn't care. They don't give a damn. They only look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. They want to have a certain numbers of, uh, of uh, minorities. And they, you know, they don't care whether the minorities do well as a consequence or do badly. They, I don't think they give a damn about it. So most of these kids, who would have done math or engineering or medicine or whatever, they end up in the end, they end up in gender studies or in, in, uh, in uh, uh, disciplines where essentially they re restrain a lot of the possibilities that they can, they can have after they finish. Right. Well, I'm so disappointed that during my years at Princeton, I had no idea that you were over in the math department, Sergio. <laughs> I walked by your building so many times, but I was just over in the economics department at uh, Fisher Hall. Uh, when when was this? I was there from 93 to 97. So we did overlap, actually. Yes. Yes. I came in 87. So. Yes. All right. Last question. I see that we are both fans of George Orwell. Uh, could you end with a favorite scene from Orwell that illuminates where we are and where we need to go? Uh, okay, so that's, uh, I, I must say, I am, uh, I can't really talk about a particular, mm -hmm. a particular um, segment of a book. I, I'd rather talk about the book itself. So I, I, I read Animal Farm uh, in French, in fact, because obviously it was not available in Romanian. When I was maybe 15 or 16, I don't exactly remember, but I still remember the extraordinary impact it had on me, mm. uh, given my communist education before that. Uh, there's never been a better, more concise analysis of the communist experience, I think, uh, than uh, the Animal Farm. 1984 went deeper. Mm -hmm. But still, Animal Farm is my favorite. Uh, after reading that book, I don't see how any rational person can still hold the belief that communism was good, only badly implemented. Because uh, the, the, the whole story is about how well intentions led to a, a completely disastrous outcome. Uh, every time it was tried, 
obviously uh, this experience led to total disasters. Well, why don't we end it on that? Uh, thank you so much for your time, Sergio. Thank you for fighting the good fight at Princeton. And uh, hopefully one day I will get to meet you in person and we can have some PJ's pancakes or uh, Thomas Sweet's ice cream together. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you come. All right. All right. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much. And um, I'll give you the last word. Anything else you want to say? Uh... Yeah, it's, uh, actually, uh, I, I have a quotation from uh, Orwell, which I think it's... Uh, right. Let's, let's hear it. It's very relevant. So he, he said somewhere, I don't remember where, he said the essence of being human is that one does not seek perfection, that one is sometimes willing to commit sins for the sake of loyalty, that one does not push assets to the point where it, it makes friendly intercourse impossible, and that one is prepared in the end to be defeated and broken up by life, which is the inevitable price of fastening one's love upon other human individuals. So this uh, doesn't doesn't square with everything we talked about, but I think it squares with the way <laughs> yeah, with the experience of of, uh, of Joshua Katz, at Princeton. All right. Okay. So thank you and uh, happy Halloween. <laughs>